we've been looking at the, that, that section of the Rambam's writings in which he describes the 13 principles that are the foundations of, of Torah thinking, of religion in general really. And uh, we've looked at the background and introduction to those so-called articles of faith. <clears throat> Let's see if we can take a, another step. Hmm. We said that one of these principles really sums them all up. And that is that the all of these 13 principles, 13 creedal statements, if you like, articles of faith, they all really amount to one, which is what we call in English faith. That's really the wrong, that's really the wrong word, because faith or belief is not, has the wrong connotations. But for want of a better word, when we talk about belief in in God, in Hashem's existence, knowledge of the higher world, knowledge of Hashem's existence. Let's call that belief or faith. All 13 really boil down to that. The totality of the 13 really is a relationship with the higher world. Knowing that this world is not all that there is, not what the object of living is not to engage only the manifest world, but to be able to penetrate into, make contact with something which is higher. Now, in the first of the you remember that when the Rabbah goes, goes through the 13 I'm sure I have to remind you that those are parallel to the first 13 that he mentions as the source of again, assuming that I'm sure everybody's been here for this whole course but in case you perhaps missed a sentence or two, or perhaps you couldn't tear yourself away from your Gemara one night and you, you weren't here, let me remind you that the 13 positive statements that we call articles of faith are really sourced in those 13 things that are the negative... Very much. They're really sourced in those negative statements which are the things that the Rambam says that if a person breaks one of those, that means if you're missing one of those, you have no share in the world to come. Or to put it in terms that we're using this evening, that the 13, these 13 things are elements of connection with the higher world. They really come from the 13 transgressions, if you like, mental, that means spiritual knowledge transgressions, consciousness problems, that if one of those is present, a person has no connection with the higher world. The way it's put in formal, formal language is no share in the world to come. We tried to explain before that no share in the world to come doesn't only mean that after death there's no existence for a certain part of the neshama. It means even during life there's no connection, there's no real life, in other words. Put another way, the person who is missing one of these 13 things is physically alive in the sense that biological organisms live, but not alive spiritually. Now, that's, the, that's the idea. And therefore, the system is that you have these 13 elements that are transgressions of consciousness, and they're simply phrased in the positive as, as articles of faith. They're really, the real source is really the negative, the elements of transgression. The positive side is really only just a way we, as it were, remind ourselves or we build those elements of consciousness strongly. 
Now, all 13 of these, that means all of those 13 transgressions, if you like, not having some connection with Hashem, or having the notion that he's more than one, or that he has a physical reality as, as opposed to pure spirituality. We discussed that last week, a little bit of the, the problem of the Torah's youth, use of anthropomorphic descriptions, etc. Somebody who has broken one of those things, who has that mistake, is a person who is not intrinsically, intrinsically connected to that absolute reality. The, all of those 13, put negatively, any of those 13, to break any of those is enough. You don't have to, again, to cause death in the body, you need only sever one vital artery. You don't have to cut them all. Right? Those vital organs in the body on which life depends, those vital components of the body on which life depends, life depends on all of them. You don't have to destroy all of them. Just one of them is enough. Not all of those are vital connections. And conversely, of course, in the positive side, you need to be strong in all of these. When you put all them together, they constitute nothing other than this one single connection or channel between this world and a higher world. <coughs> now, with that in mind, let's look at the first couple. The, in this formalized structure, which is again not the Rambam's personal wording, but follows very closely his, his formulation, an imamin bemon shleima, I believe with a perfect faith, using those English words, he's the creator and master of all that is created. He did, does, and will do all things that are done. Statement of Emona, faith for want of a better word. Secondly, an imam in Bimunashlema believe with a perfect faith that Hashem is single and, and one from all, in all perspectives that a human being can, can describe. Thirdly, that he has no body, no physical element like we discussed last week. Fourth, that is first and last. Fifth, and this is the one I'd like to spend a little time on this evening. He is the one alone to whom it's fitting to... best translation of this word would be pray. And it's not fitting, the converse is not appropriate. In other words, to deal with anything else other than him is inappropriate. This isn't only a discussion of prayer, it's also a discussion of what we call service. That means Hashem. Prayer really means... The, the uh, term that the sages use for prayer is that means the work of the heart. It's a work or a service, we even call it a prayer service in English, that has a valid derivation. We call it a prayer service. There's a serving that's done in prayer, we need to talk about that. And then the Rambam goes on from six, from number 6 on to discuss Torah, prophetic, the prophetic element in Torah and various other elements of the connection between this world and the higher world. The, the way he puts this in a negative phrasing that we derive this from is that it's not appropriate, or put, put more harshly, is that somebody who deals with a source or purported source other than Hashem in prayer or in service right, is, is breaking one of these fundamentals and has no spiritual life. That, generally speaking, is what we call idolatry. Right? What we call idolatry. Really, this is not just one of the 13 because it really is a breaking of the whole structure of all 13. Let's try to spend a little time trying to understand this a bit more deeply. I think in the past, over the months, we have discussed some aspects of the subject. But let's try and pull it together and, and see it comprehensively as best we can. We also need to take a look at the subject of astrology as far as it's connected to this subject. It's a massive subject, not enough time this evening to go into it fully. But let, let's, let's at least see if we can point the direction. First of all, if these 13 things 
are elements or foundations that construct the correct channel of communication, let's say, or accessing the source of the neshama, where it has its source in the higher world, then idolatry is the opposite of that. The problem is that very hard for us to understand the concept of idolatry. It sounds a very, very primitive and, and superficial idea. And we need to look at that carefully. Prayer itself is a separate subject. We need to look at that also, also lengthy discussion. And astrology as such also needs perhaps more full analysis. But let's at least try and pull together the common elements here and see where it takes us. First of all, in broad, with broad brushstrokes, we would say this, that if these 13 things are building a fundamental, the most fundamental thing that there is, which we call emona, emona means the loyalty to the source, right? Not like the English word faith or belief implies, some sort of convinced state of mind. We're talking about much more than that. We're talking about a, a knowledge of a source and then a faithfulness to that knowledge. That's what we mean by emona, from the word neeman, meaning faithful or loyal. If that's where genuine life is, like it says, Tzadik be'monasa yechia, the righteous lives by faith. Pull the whole Torah down to one statement. As the Talmud discusses, the Midrashim discusses, that is the one single statement on, all of, on which all of Jewish life, or the spiritual life, really rests. So then it follows that the primal sin, right, that means if you want to put your finger on one transgression, which really contains all of them, it is this notion of idolatry. And that raises many difficult issues for us. First of all, let's try to understand why it is that we say that the worship of idols, even though it sounds bizarre to us, is the, is the transgression that subsumes all others. First of all, in logic, it should be apparent. If the purpose of living is to relate to a higher world, and that all 13 of the most fundamental aspects of Torah construct only one, which is emunah, which is faith, which is connection with Hashem, then it should be obvious in logic that the most important and all-encompassing transgression is a breaking down of that same thing. That should be logical. Secondly, we see that if you look at the Ten Commandments, which are certainly fundamental, they're not these 13, but be that as it may, they're certainly fundamentals of Torah, you see that the first of the Ten Commandments is nothing other than the mitzvah of Emunah, right? which is Anuchi Hashem Elokecha, I am Hashem, right? And the second is the converse. You shall have none other than me. Right? You shall have no other gods other than me. You see that they are the two, the converse, they are the converse of each other. The Torah starts with that which is subsuming all other mitzvahs, and it goes on to that which subsumes all transgressions. Right? The system is, the system, the way the, way the Torah builds things, and Acute observation will show you that the way things are built in the world is exactly the same way. Is that the moment of inception or the moment of conception holds everything. From then on, things become broken down and particulate and differentiated until you finally get down to the most granular of details. But the moment of firstness is the moment of totality. The best analogy for this, the best analogy for this is not, of course, an analogy. It's a perfect example of this is that when a child is formed, maybe we'll just spend a few minutes on two examples because it's so critical to grasp. When a child is conceived, so the notion we have of that, the correct way to view that, and the spiritual sources, mystical sources talk about it like this, is that when a child is conceived, at the moment of conception, 
is the most potent moment because in that moment all of the future of the child is laid down. The way the genes fuse, right? Not only the way the genes fuse, which set of genes is selected at that moment among all the millions that could have been, right? To be the one that connects with what's offered from the female side. When that selection, as it were, is made, which could have been millions or perhaps billions of others, and even after that selection has been made, you, you're probably well aware that the way the genetic code is organized is such that a whole genetic code in both male and female splits into a half. Right? And the two complementary halves join to form a new whole. Even the way they split involves a selective process. Right? There are certain, certain genes that are carried on one half of a chromosomal pair or a genetic that can either yes be transmitted or not be transmitted. So the whole process is a process of boiling down to one particular selection among millions or billions of other possibilities. It means in that critical moment when that happens, the child is fixed, all the details are fixed. Right? If, if at that moment blue eyes are laid down, the child would have blue eyes. It, it, it's not apparent at that moment because the genes for blue eyes don't look blue. You have to know how to read genes. But that, that component has been fixed. All the other components that the genes code for are fixed at that moment. The rest of the pregnancy is nothing other than a revelation, relatively speaking, of that which was really built in that first moment. And the birth of the child and subsequent growth is really only a coarser and more explicit and, and more a larger scale revelation of that which was there in the beginning. I mean, there are many, there are many important corollaries of this, obviously. One is that it pays to pay attention to beginnings more than it does to endings from this perspective. The reason being that it's a much more potent and much more critical time. If you make a scratch in a human body, the scratch may not have much consequence. But if you scratch a developing embryo, a small scratch may have far-reaching consequences. And if you go down to the moment of genetic fusion, the most microscopic and infinitesimal adjustment, let alone a scratch, could have the, by far the most far-reaching consequences. Moments of beginning. Let's take another example. A little more difficult to to grasp, but anyone who's had their own inner experience of life will, will know this, is that when you conceive not a child, but you conceive a, an element of consciousness, not what we call an idea, the conception of an idea works the same way. The way an idea happens is that you walk around waiting for the moment of conception. Often it, it, it takes a long time. You can be very frustrated. You can go through long periods of time waiting to be for that inspiration which is the solution to your problem or for that inspiration that you need to build whatever it is you're going to build. And suddenly and almost always unexpectedly there's a light that's lit and that's the moment of ideation. Right? In that moment, very hard to put into words, very clumsy to put into words, but in that moment the totality of the idea is laid down. In fact, the reason that it's an ecstatic moment is because in that first moment of an idea you are aware, even though it's impossible, because there hasn't been enough time to become aware, that the idea is complete. You know, if an architect needs to build a building, and he has to come up with the right conception of how it's going to look, right down to its details, so a creative work like that requires inspiration. Right? Even a very, very competent professional can't always start from the ground and work it up. There's a, there's a flash of inspiration of concept that's needed. Many... Many human building experiences are like that. In fact, the most important ones are like that. So what happens is the way, the, way, the way an expert, the way a professional, the way anybody who works in that kind of field does it, is not by constructing the pieces. 
the way sometimes people put pieces together to generate an inspiration, but it's only a it's only a very crude way of hoping that you'll be given that that gift that you need. Usually, the way you do it is get more and more frustrated because you don't have it. That's usually what happens. And usually, when you're so frustrated that you give up, is when it happens. Usually, when you're sleeping, the God says that usually happens when you go to sleep with a problem in complete exhaustion and frustration you fall asleep thinking you'll never work it out and then you wake up the next morning and you say you've got it then of course you have the chutzpah to say that you worked it out because you don't want to acknowledge that it's a gift that came from a higher place but you didn't work it out but that's not our subject directly what is our subject is that in that moment of inspiration the architect suddenly hit with an idea of how he's going to do this project the remarkable thing about it is that in that single moment he knows that it's all there in that incredible moment when he's lit by that inspiration of how he's going to do this project, even though it's an infinitesimal moment, but in that moment, the whole thing is clear. Of course, what happens in the next moment is, the dust settles and the smoke clears, and then he starts to see the overall concept, you know, how many floors and how many... And finally, as the moments go by, the clarity comes down all the way down to the doorknobs and each brick and each window frame. Right? And of course, there's less and less inspiration and excitement the further and further you move towards the details. And as the mystics point out, which is again not our subject, the way the building goes, of course, is exactly the opposite. This is called the male component, and that's called the female component. But the way the building goes is exactly opposite. The building does not go as a one-stage inspiration. The building goes from one doorknob and one window frame and one brick until finally it's all put together. The moment of end is parallel to the moment of beginning. What was first in conception in totality is exactly parallel if the building is, is if, if there's loyalty in the building, then loyalty to the plan, then what happens in the end is safe what happens in the end is exactly what was there in conception. That's how male and female work in opposite dimensions. But the moment of firstness is the moment when it's all there. And therefore, in Torah the system is that whenever you look at the beginning of a process, you're looking at its totality. It may be too compressed to tease out the elements yet, but it's all there. The measure says, for example, that the world was not created in seven days. The world was created at the first moment of the first of the seven days. It only took seven days for the genetic components to begin to reveal themselves. And then it took thousands of years for the world to develop fully into it. But in that first moment, it's all laid down. So far, so good? It therefore follows that any time you see a moment of firstness in Torah, you see everything. I think we pointed out before that the word Bereshis, meaning in the beginning, is the word that contains the whole chronology of Torah. Right? The word has six letters. They each stand for one of the thousand years of the six thousand years of creation. Right? We're now five, seven, six, one. <coughs> Close to the end. Each of the letters, etc. In fact, the word Bereshis, what more could you ask? The word Bereshis spells bara, chase. He created six. That's what the word actually says. Two, two Hebrew Aramaic words together actually say that what was created was six. <coughs> Chase Alpha Shnin, 6,000 years. That's what it says. So, if you look at the chronology of the world's history, the word, the word Genesis, or the word in the beginning, Bereshis, that word contains the whole chronology. If you look at the spiritual creation of Torah, we don't look at the word Bereshis, we look at the word Anoki, the first word of the Ten Commandments. And that word contains all of the Ten Commandments, which contain all of the Torah. And that's the reason that the Medrash says that all of the Torah is contained in the Ten Commandments, all of the Ten Commandments contained in the first one, all of the first one contained in the first word, all of the first word contained in the first letter, the Aleph, which has all the spiritual components that develop into the rest of the alphabet, and so forth. Now, with that, armed with that information, we can say this, that if you look at the Ten Commandments, which are the root of Torah, you see that the first of them, obviously the root of everything that exists. 
And what is that? Nothing other than Anochi Hashem Anokecha. I am. It's a statement of Hashem's existence. In fact, it's well known that the Rishonim, the Rambam, the Ramban, they go into a lengthy discussion about the fact that this commandment is not even phrased as a commandment. All the others are phrased as, you shall do this or you shall not. This one is simply phrased as a statement of Hashem's existence. And the debate there is the subtle discussion between whether this is a commandment or it's a, pre- it's a commandment which is the bedrock for all others. If you don't accept that there's a, cre- a commander, then no other commandment makes sense. Or is this so fundamental that it comes before even commandments? And that's why it's not phrased... Again, the, the discussion here is, why did the Torah phrase the first commandment not as thou shalt? You shall believe. Not you must believe that I exist. When many of them point out the logical problem, you can't command somebody to believe something he doesn't believe in. You can't be commanded to believe. Can you see the paradox in there? Anyone out there? <laughs> you can't be commanded to believe. Incidentally, you shouldn't be able to be commanded to love either. It's a problem. It needs to be discussed. Here's a commandment to love Hashem. How can you be commanded to love? But more fundamental is how can you be commanded to have an attitude? How can you be commanded to relate to Him, to believe, when it's not apparent and visible? So why is it phrased not as a commandment? Now this is the discussion. But however you look at it, it's certainly fundamental in the sense that it comes before other commandments. It contains everything. Now we know that as the process unfolds, the first moment contains everything. The second contains everything from there on in. And from the second, um, yes... The moment of conception contains the whole future of the child. After the conception is the pregnancy. That contains the future of the child from after the conception. The second of the Ten Commandments contains everything that comes thereafter. The first contains everything. I am Hashem contains obviously the negative command as well. Just like it contains the positive commandment of relating to Hashem, obviously it negates the opposite which is denying His existence. That's obviously contained within it. But then it becomes, it comes, becomes revealed, it becomes an explicit commandment. There shall be no others before me. So you have a fascinating thing. The first of the commandments contains everything, and also contains most specifically all positive commandments. The second of the commandments, the beginning of negativeness, of negativity, of negation. There are none others besides me. That is the root of all negative commands. So, fact one. When the Torah posits the first of the negative commandments that subsumes all others, that commandment is not to engage in idolatry. Right? There's no more massive transgression than that. In fact, it goes to the extent that breaking other, any other <coughs> transgression in the Torah is also breaking idolatry. In a sense. right? Because any time you break <coughs> a law, you're really denying the authority, yet you're taking upon yourself another, an authority other than the original, <coughs> the one who commands. So there's an element of going against the one who commands. That's what idolatry is. Similarly, of course, every time you fulfill a positive command, you're also fulfilling the mitzvah of Emona. Because every time you act in obedience to divine command, you're also asserting that he is the one who commands, which is relating to him. Can you see why these are fundamental? Now that leads us to a number of questions, so let's think through them. First question is this. We, in our Western, you know, cultural head, we are taught to think, we're used to thinking, that idolatry is the worship of graven images. But idols and, and grave, graven images, right? Correct? That's how we're taught to think. We picture people bowing down to some shape that they've carved or manufactured, almost always human, in shape somehow or other. 
And the problem is that we, we regard that as embarrassingly primitive. I think. Right? That means a person who carves a shape in stone and then starts bowing down to it as if... I mean, the way it's put in the, in the, in the psukim is that he, he bows down and worships it as if it, it created him. Right? Pharaoh, for example, Paro, he set himself up as the idolatrous source of all Egyptian... all that Egypt was. His, the statement he made was, Li ni asisini. I mean, there are two versions of it in the Pesukim. One is, the Nile is mine and I created it. But there's another version which is, the Nile is mine and I created me, myself. That, that means, in fact, the prophet mocks an idolater who takes a log of wood, cuts half up for firewood, cuts the other half and carves a shape in it, and then bows down to it as if it created him. Now, the problem is that any intelligent individual should ask, and this is what we have to grapple with this evening, is this. If idolatry is worshipping an image, that means bowing down in obeisance and obedience and worship and adulation of some inanimate object that I myself carved, right? why on earth is that the most potent prohibition of the Torah? At worst, at best, what I'm not sure what the correct word is, you should say that that is ridiculously infantile behavior. Right? Or perhaps even worse, you would say that it is demented behavior. I would imagine that anybody who carves a shape in a piece of wood and then worships it as if he created him, I would think that person's in need of psychiatric help before he needs religious help. That's what I would have thought. I would, if you came across somebody bowing down to a piece of wood that he carved, saying that it created him, would you send him to your local rabbi or your local... <laughs> I think it would be more appropriate, don't you agree? I think it would be more appropriate to send the person for... For, for, for psychological help, I think. I don't know if it's a religious problem. Long before it's a religious problem, What is this? What, what is this? What, what is the meaning of this thing? Why would intelligent people, we're talking about incredible ge- generations of incredible depth and perception and intelligence and greatness and prophecy. It bowed down to graven images. What does that mean? What on earth does that mean? That's one problem. The second problem is, so we're building the questions. Question one, why is it such a massive prohibition if it's so silly? There is a commandment not to be silly. You know that? Somewhere down the list, not a formal commandment, but all the sources talk about it, that you shouldn't be stupid. Be silly. So if it's an empty figment of imagination, at, at worst it is silly, maybe psychiatrically worse than that. But the deepest of religious problems, why? Secondly, it's the, it's the second of the Ten Commandments, meaning it's the root of all negative commands. Why would something so silly and superficial and meaningless and ridiculous and infantile, and so, such a figment of imagination, be the most important prohibition of the Torah? The Torah is speaking to highly intelligent people of prophetic ability. It has to warn people like that not to worship images that are empty and silly and, and imaginary. Thirdly, a much more subtle way of putting the question, but the way the Kabbalists put the question, is this. You know, whenever the Torah speaks about idolatrous gods, false gods, first of all it speaks about them as if they're real. The Torah itself, God Himself, Hashem Himself, talks about other gods as if they're real. Isn't that misleading? I mean, let me ask you a question. Are there other gods? I mean, we've been learning this subject for a few weeks together. Please, you know, don't upset me. Yeah, just tell me. (laughs) Make my night. Are there any other gods besides Hashem? Uh. (laughs) 
So then why does Hashem himself say you shall have no other gods before me? What do you mean no other gods? What does he mean? Don't imagine anything? Why does he talk about them? The verses in the Torah talk about other gods all the time. And not only do they talk about other gods, they use the same names that Hashem uses for himself. You know that? The names of false gods, apart from specific names, right? The Philistines had a fly god. That also needs psychiatric analysis. They had a god that was a fly. A fly. You know what that means? A fly. That was their god. The people of Baal in the desert worshipped human excretion. That, that's what they worshipped. They worshipped the process of human excretion. That the most consummate act of worship was to perform one's ablutions in front of this idol. But that doesn't need psychiatric... I don't know what goes for normal today, but I, I imagine in most phases of human history that needs, you know, understanding. I mean, I haven't been to a rock concert lately, but... <laughs> but the point is that apart from those specific names that were particular idols, the general name of false gods the names of gods other than Hashem, the Torah uses, are the same names. Now, we've studied together many times the idea that in Hebrew, in Torah, the word means the thing. So, if the Torah is here talking about figments of human imagination, that means the subject matter here is some South Sea Islander who has been chewing on some root or smoking some leaf. And he now makes some image in stone that looks more or less, more or less like him. And then he starts bowing down to this piece of stone that he himself carved. And the Torah comes along and calls, calls that a prohibition and names that idol with the same name that it uses for Hashem himself. He couldn't find some other words that they were words that indicated emptiness. The second of the Ten Commandments that we began with says, La yelecha Elohim acherim. There shall be no, we never pronounce that word unless it's in the sense of idolatrous gods. If we were referring to Hashem, we wouldn't pronounce the word. Elohim Acherim, other gods. The, the, the name Elohim that we use for Hashem is the same word. Yeah? There's one name of God, there's one name of Hashem that we never use in idolatrous context, and that's Yud K Vav K. We never pronounce that word. That you'll never find in any context other than Hashem. <coughs> you'll never find that as a borrowed word for any idolatrous source. But all the other names of Hashem, like Aleph and Lamed, right, which spells the name of the beginning of creation, Kael Chesed, Kael Kolayom, that name. You find that name applied to other the name Elohim Kikol Amim Elilim, we say, and then you pause and you say Vashem Shemaim also. Because you can't say in one breath, yeah, those names and his. But the word the name you give to those false ones is the name Elohim. And the name of Adnus, Aleph, Dalad, Nun, Yud, Adoi, that name is used many times for idolatrous sources. In fact, the Bosque says that Hashem is the, don't say that word, the master of, using Aleph, Dalet, Nun, of the same name. As if to say that, in other words, there are many, many times in the verses of the Torah that Hashem himself refers to other gods as if they are real. And not only that, but uses the very same names that the Torah uses for him. Now that is very perplexing. I mean, what I hope that you, what's happening is I hope you're beginning to get the feeling that there's something very real and very, very, very real and very potent out there. That when the Torah speaks about these things, it's not talking about figments of imagination at all. 
I mean, that's very strange. We'll need to be understood. But can you feel that that's where we're heading? Again, the reasons. It was a figment of some demented imagination. The Torah wouldn't take it seriously. If, if it was a figment of imagination and not real, the Torah wouldn't talk about them as if they exist. If there was some figment of someone's imagination, the Torah wouldn't name them with names of divine power. And finally, if they were figments of someone's imagination, they would not be prohibited with the force of the prohibition that subsumes all others. Other questions, clear? Right, let's try, let's try to look at the answer to these questions and see, where, see, see how deep we can go. Now, in order to do this, we'll need to look at the subject of astrology briefly. Because it's the key to understanding this, this area. And we don't have enough time to do it with all its detail or anything like that, but let's at least try and lay down the pattern. So we'll have to study the structure of the higher worlds. Okay, very, very broad outline. Again, this is discussed in the Kabbalistic sources, particularly. I mean, we're not here talking about any forbidden wisdom or any you're talking here about sources that talk about these things very openly. Not the. This is far from material that is so esoteric that one shouldn't be studying it. But those, those sources that, that write about these things, they say this, that the world that we inhabit is the last of a chain reaction of many worlds. Right? That's what we call, the, the Kabbalistic concept is called Ishtalshalut, which means Shalshalet in Hebrew is a chain. It means each world is linked to the one below it, like links in a chain. But of course it's not only links in a chain, each link is really causative, brings out the world below it. And the reason that a chain is used the reason that a chain is used is that a chain has a unique characteristic. The way a chain is built is such, is such a way that each link... Can you see what happens in a chain? In a chain, each link, the lowest part of the higher link, is lower than the highest part of the lower link. Oh, you should be... This is wonderful stuff. You should be jumping up and down. This is, this is a very wonderful analogy here. A chain is built in such a way that the higher link goes a little bit lower than the top part of the lower link. Right? That's a subject, that's called, what has a name also in the Kabbalistic writing, of how each higher world invests itself within a layer of the lower world. In fact, the concept is that the lowest part of the higher world is the highest part of the lower world. Right? There's a meshing together which is very significant. Nebuchadnezzar talks about it in detail. And on Sundays, those of us who study together have been studying that concept. But, apart from that detail, the, chain, the links are such that each one gives existence and holds on to, as it were, the one below it, and the, one, the next link in the chain does the same for the one below that, and so forth, until the last link in the chain is this world that we inhabit, the world of tangible reality. Of course, the first link in the chain not, is off limits to our understanding. Right? We can project certain projections, and there's certain limits that we can, certain places we can go to, and the books that deal with a very esoteric material deal with those limitations, but we need not concern ourselves with that this evening. I'd like to look at the lower end of this chain, which is much more amenable to our understanding. So we have here a chain reaction of worlds. Now, each level, why would there be links in a chain? In fact, endless links. The reason is that when you move from one down to another, a change occurs. A change occurs. It isn't just arbitrary that you have to cover the distance. The reason that there is a distance is because you have to translate an infinity into a finite reality. And of course, that takes an endless number of links. 
Anyone? With you? Are we together? No? Again, the problem here, we're trying to solve a problem, right? We, these are logical things. Torah, Torah is a logical structure. It's not arbitrary, right? What are we trying to do? We're trying to go from a source of infinite oneness and bring it down to a world of tiny differentiated details. That, that's, that's an impossible process. So if it's going to take stages, it's at least going to take an endless number of stages. It's going to be a long night. Anyway, take it from me. It's going to take many stages. What, what each stage does is give existence to a stage beneath it that is closer to tangible reality. That is more concrete and less, less close to the, to, the, to the ungraspable oneness. So far, so good? Now, next step. Each link in the chain also has another unique property. And that is that obviously it's intermediate between the one above it and the one below it. You can cut the chain anywhere, take any three links, and you'll notice that whatever world you're talking about, whatever the form of that world is in all its esoteric detail, the middle link of the three is going to be that which has the ability to change that which is above into that which is below. Make sense? In fact, it has many characteristics. One of the characteristics is that it shares the nature of the one above and the one below. The Maral says that glue, the nature of glue, this talks about bonding men and women also, the nature of an adhesive is that it must have properties of the two things that it bonds. That's why it can bring them together. <laughs> Even though they may not have no properties of each other. But as long as each of them has a property that the combining element has, then you can bond them together. That's why you need glue. It's called devek. That's, that's what it is. Dvekus means a, a, a cleaving into one. Now. Now, next piece. Each of these intermediate stages that's capable of changing the one above into the one below also has another unique feature. And that is it depends where it is. You see, if this is not arbitrary, if each link in the chain is necessary, then each one has to be different than the one before it and the one below it. And that's why there are that many numbers in the chain. Making sense? That means, if you put a microscope and you, you cut a piece of the chain and you took it out, on the one hand you'd see a piece that looks like any other piece. Because any link will have the characteristics of being a hook for the one above and a hook for the one below. But on the other hand, it will have something unique about it. It will be a unique color or flavor, depending on which part of the whole sequence you took it out. Now, we're getting close to what we need. There's one piece of this chain. Actually, it reflects the whole chain, like all the pieces do. But there's one piece of this chain that is absolutely unique and, and fascinating. And it's the link in the chain, one below the last. I'm talking very generally here. Because the link one below the last has got a unique characteristic. What is the last in the, what is the, last in the chain? This world. This world is unique. What's unique about this world is that to exist in this world that in Kabbalistic writing is called Asiya. Asiya means the world of tangible, concrete reality. In this world what's unique is objects or individual objects. One thing is only one thing. It can't be two things. Do you understand? What's unique about this world is that in the devolution of all the worlds for the first time and the last time, when you get to this world, you get to a place where things are concrete and finally frozen into what they are. If you move up one layer, or two or three or four layers, you get into worlds where things can be many things at once. Angels, for example. An angel can take on many forms. There's multi-potentiality. There's a flexibility. There's a dynamic 
That's why we can't see it. You can only see a thing that is one thing. If it's constantly oscillating between all things, you can't. All you see is a blur. Right? And that's what you see. When you look at the higher worlds, it's so blurred you don't see it. That's incidentally why you don't see the soul. But the body you can see. Because the body is only one body. An object in the world is only one thing. And in order to have something in the tangible world that we need to operate in, things are... But let's move one step up. You know, fascinating world. One step above this one, you get to a world that are able to bond and connect to a world of finite differentiated entities and also able to look at it and bond to and bring down from a world in which there's no differentiation. It's an incredible junction between, as it were, generally speaking, infinity and the finite world. That's the world of the stars. Astrology is the study... <coughs> Astrology is the study of that world which brings down from an infinite oneness, generally speaking, to the world of differentiated finite. Let me give you an analogy for this. It makes it a bit easier. There's some... And of course, that's why people study the stars. That's why Kabbalistic wisdom or astrological wisdom looks at the stars. Why? Because if you look at that world, you can begin to perceive what will be... You can't look higher than that because your human eyes can't see higher than that. Because you're looking into a, into a level where there's no differentiation. But if you look into that world, you can see the beginning of what's going to be the channels that will come down here as each separate object or event. Right? That's how astrological wisdom is used to predict the future. In fact, it's not predicting the future at all. It's only looking at the causative channels of things that are already on their way into expression. Astrological prediction is no different than looking at a, at a seed and predicting what tree will grow. That's a very weak sense of predicting the future. It's not prophetic at all. Are you with me? If you take a seed and you cut it open, take an acorn. If you cut an acorn open, you don't see a small oak tree. The inside of an acorn is not as miniature oak tree. The inside of an acorn is just a white, homogeneous material. But if you take that to an expert and you say, what is this? The person will say, if you wait five years or ten or fifteen years, you'll have a tree that looks like this and it will have leaves like this. will tell you all the details. That person is not predicting the future, just a person who knows seeds. Astrological prediction is of that nature. It is a looking at the channels. Incidentally, that's why there are 12 zodiac signs. You know what 12 is? Why are you shaking your head? We've been studying 13 for a long time, haven't we? What is 13? 13 is how disparate, different things are bonded. Isn't that right? We've studied many times together. You're all black belt capitalists, by the way. We've said many times together that the world of differentiation is 12. You remember that? The idealized three-dimensional structure we said is a cube. A cube has 12 lines bounding it, right? What's called capitalistically the yud-based kaveh alaks and the 12 meridia that surround reality. The 13th is how they lock together and form one object. So 12 is the number of differentiation. The number of maximal differentiation. Right? The 13th bonds them together. How many tribes in the Jewish people? 12. Yaakov Avinu, the father from whom they all spring, bonds them into oneness. Right? And therefore, there are 12 zodiac elements because the stars are the world of taking oneness above and breaking it into the 12 meridia, the 12 lines of energy that constitute the finite world. That's why there are 12 of them. The analogy that's given in some places is like a 
The worlds above are like water. There's a reason for this analogy as well. Sometimes described as light, sometimes as water, the upper waters. But if you take the world of water in the higher, in the higher spheres, water is undifferentiated, right? Water has no... all the parts look the same. But imagine water in a bath. Underneath the bath there are small holes. What happens is, inside the bath the water is all one. But outside it is flowing in specific channels. What are called sinorot. Sinor means like a pipeline. So you have the undifferentiated oneness in the higher world, but it comes into this world as specific differentiated channels that bring it down. Each channel is bringing an object into existence, or an event, or a phenomenon. And of course you don't need to look at the object, you can look at the channel and you'll know more or less how the object will be, or what will happen. Where is this reflected in the body? Just as an aside. Where is this reflected in the body? The same sources that talk about this say that this is what the hair means. In the Kabbalistic writings, the hairs are called sinorot, pipelines. The reason the body is created with hairs. Why were you created that way? Why, why do you have hair? Why, why do you have hair? hair? Hair is an amazing thing. Inside your head, you are one, you are you. And suddenly sprouting outside your head are thousands of little pipelines. So you, you think you have hair on you because a few million years ago when you were a gorilla, <laughs> you know, you needed to keep warm. Now you don't wear a hat, so you know, you need, I mean, that's not the reason. The reason is because inside the oneness, inside the body is the private oneness of who you are, and outside is a world of differentiation. And the body is built that way. That means the consciousness, which is the oneness of you, bursts out into the outside, it reveals, the inner consciousness is revealed in measured portions. You know, the words say are in Hebrew, so you can't cope without Hebrew. can't begin to understand spirituality without Hebrew. The words say are in Hebrew, which means a hair, is the same Hebrew word as shiur. A shiur means a measured portion, right? Like a shiur of food, because it's a, in fact, the other Hebrew um, projection of that word is sha'ar. Sha'ar means a gateway. Because a gateway means only a certain amount can get through at a time. It's again a measured portion, right? As opposed to the rest of it. If anything can get through, it's called a peritza in Hebrew. Peritza means it's not a gateway. But if it's, if it's a shahar, then it means only a, a, a meshu'ah, something meshu'ah, something assessed and measured can get through. That's what the hairs are. Incidentally, this is the reason why married women are covering their hair in Jewish thinking. Because a very private revelation of an inner being that reaches the outside. This is also why the body is having hair on those parts of the body. <coughs> the body grows hair in those parts that are the roots of organs of Ashpoah. That means when an inner power, inner energy comes outside, for example the arms, the arm in the devolution of the body, <coughs> the arms are the beginning of the body. There's the first part of the body that's able to have expression outwardly in the world. So the roots of the arms grow hair. Right? That's how the body's built. It's a very deep subject. Very deep subject. This is also why men's bodies are more hairy than women. Because the energy is given out from a man. It's absorbed inwardly and built by women. Long subject, but... Also the reason for the beard. But, this needs more, needs more discussion. But, the point is that you have here a world. You have here a world, a higher world of oneness. 
And that world is coming down into the world of multiplicity where the oneness gets divided up. That's called astrological. That's called the, that's the stars. Now, let's go one step further. Let's get back to idolatry. There's an intense motivation that the human being has to transcend, to go beyond. There's another subject we'll need to discuss in great detail. Perhaps next time we meet we can think about it. And that is why this pull to idolatry does not affect us today. Why we are trained to think that idolatry is some bizarre attraction, right, to this worship of objects and fetish elements and so forth. We need to understand deeply how the human psyche changed so that in the early generations of the world's history, people had an almost irrepressible longing to do this. And today it seems ridiculous to us. So there's a discussion. But one thing at a time. The fact is that there was a very deep element of human aspiration which was to transcend into this, this direction. So let's try and explain that. Idolatry is the following. Stay with me carefully because this is the core of the understanding. Idolatry is not the worship of some fetish or object or carved image. It's not like that at all. The worship of an idol, idolatry, what we call avodah zara, right? Strange worship. That which the Ramam is talking about, that's, that prohibition that he says that it's not fitting to, uh, is not the worship of some silly figment of anyone's imagination. It is looking in exactly the right direction, up to the source, but instead of going beyond into the oneness of the water or the light that's above, it's being content to stop where the channels manifest. That's what it is. And that's why divine names are used. It is divine energy. And that's why it's so real and so potent and so prohibited. It's not a figment. A person who is craving, uh, carving an image in stone and then bow down to, down, down to it, that person definitely has psychological problems long before he has religious problems. That's not... You have to understand that the graven images in classical idolatry are only... They're only a comfort zone. They're only a, a way of manifesting that which is beginning to come into manifestation in some way that I can actually have a tangible representation. Of course it's forbidden. Of course it's the, it's the crudest and crassest and basest form right, of this whole process. But the process begins when you go to a finite place, which is very spiritual. It's an astrological place. But it's not the oneness of Hashem. Let me try and make it a bit more clear. There's no way to say it any better than Rav Simcha Vassman used to put it. He used to... Uh, all of this hard work of trying to explain used to put in one simple analogy. Used to say, beautiful analogy, you say like this, idolatry is a person who walks into a department store and he wants to buy a camera. So he sees the camera there behind the counter, the camera costs 1500 he only has 150 So he calls over the fellow from behind the counter and he says, look, I'll slip you 150 you slip me the camera. That's idolatry. Idolatry is a person who walks into the department store of the world and instead of relating to the one who owns the world, he tries to pay off the departmental... You know, he's interested only in who can deliver the goods. Not slowly, slowly, one step at a time. He's interested in who can deliver the goods. He's not interested in who owns the store. That's not relevant to me. I'm interested in the camera. So I'm interested in the fellow who delivers the goods. I'm prepared to pay him off. I'm not prepared to pay him the full price. Because the full price of living correctly is all, every second of the rest of your life. In dedication to the one who is the source of reality, who is reality. That, that's too heavy. So I'm prepared to pay a price. I'll pay a proportion of my income. I'll sacrifice a few children and slaughter them. You know, we're talking about serious price that, 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 that history has recorded as other. But not everything that there is. Because these people are interested in who can deliver the goods. Idolatry is, do you understand? It's walking into the department store. What do I need? Health, wealth, fertility, war, what, you name it. So the departments. So as long as you can pay off the departmental source to deliver the goods... You look up to where the channels differentiate and you select the, the elements of channel 
that are meaningful. We're not talking about going outside the system and looking elsewhere at some graven image or, or, or carved log of wood. That's ridiculous. We're talking about looking at the place where it genuinely comes from. It genuinely comes from that place. And you're aware of it. These people are perceptive 100%. There's no mistake. Only, instead of going all the way to the source, they content to go halfway. Just far enough to identify the source of the goods that are desired. You know, think about it for a moment. The Greek gods. Greek gods, right? The Greeks had a whole pantheon of gods. Incidentally, you notice, like all idolatry, they were human in their... They were human in their personae, in their manifestations. What were the Greek gods? They were the god, there was a god of war, of love, you name it. Was there one god among them who created the world? No, because who needs him? Who needs him? Whoever owns and controls and runs the whole department store is irrelevant to me. I need this item or that item. You have to understand, Judaism is going to the source of the one who owns the whole store. I mean, real classic Jewish behavior is to go and see him and tell him you want to buy him. <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. If he wants to give it to you 150, instead of, he wants to give you a big discount, that's fine. He has the one who has authority to give you the discount. We don't deal with the departmental underlings. That's Jewish mentality. We go to the top and we go to the source because that's the Jewish neshama. The Jewish neshama comes from the source. And therefore our work is to go directly to the source. Is this clear? And therefore the Torah uses divine names for idolatry because they are the divine energies. Not Yud Kei not that name. That name is the name of the oneness. But all the names of power in the world, like Elohim, the name Elohim means Hashem's manifestation in the world. Elohim means the master of nature. Adnus means the, 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 the master controller of the world. Those energies that are the divine force in the world, those are the names of idolatrous forces because that's exactly what they are. You know how the Rambam puts this? The Rambam says we're talking here about forces of nature. Why? Because the early idolaters, he puts it very plainly, he says that the early idolaters said, early generations of the world's history, who were completely at God consciousness was, was written all over them. They were totally aware of the source. They lived in the prophetic age. So they made a mistake. The mistake was like, they said like this. They said, look, Hashem is control and creator of the world. How does he interact with us? Through intermediaries, doesn't he? What are these channels that come down? They're the forces of nature, the laws of chemistry and physics and the wind and the moon and the sun. So they said, if Hashem chooses to emanate his being and contact us and manipulate us and deal with us through these energies, is it not fitting to give honor to the viceroy of the king as a sign of honor to the king. If he sends his minister or his prime minister or his president or his viceroy to see you, don't you give honor to the agent of the king? So they said, surely if Hashem deals with us through the sun, or the wind, or the rain, or the moon. So we should, we should give honor to those things as emissaries of the source. And they began doing that. And sooner or later, sooner rather than later, they forgot the source and were left with the intermediaries. And that was no accident. They forgot the source because he was no longer relevant. Because once you have the departmental viceroys, agencies, agents, etc., all you have to do is deal with them. So you understand, the, 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 the duality in idolatry is, on the one hand, it's absolutely ridiculous, it's nothing, it's a figment of imagination, it is, it is to be belittled and scoffed at and scorned. It is as ridiculous as choosing this half for firewood and that half for an image. But on the other hand, it represents a force, which is nothing other than a direct channel to the source. What's ridiculous about it is to think that that agency has any power. 
of, it, of its own. That's what's ridiculous and laughable. But that is the right source, the right place to look is 100% true. These people, these idolaters, are people who look exactly to the source, only made the mistake of attributing some independent power because they wished it to these intermediates, which look as if they do have intermediates. Certainly look that way. You look at the sun and the, wound and, and, and the wind and the moon, they don't look as if they control. You don't see the one who controls them, so it's convenient and suits you. And you. That's where the mistake is. Now let's go one step further. This is the painful part. But it's perfectly logical. The real difference is not between me looking all the way to the source, which is called Avodah Hashem, or me looking to the intermediary. There's a much more sinister problem here. Much deeper problem. Much deeper problem. And this, I hope, will explain why idolatrous images are almost always human. Think, think for yourself. When a person walks into a department store and wants to buy, wants to sneak the goods, what is that person really interested in? No. That means, I want to deal with the one who can deliver the goods because what I care about is me. You see, this is not a question of going all the way or going halfway. The person who's going halfway is going halfway because he's interested in what the goods can be delivered to me. The, the two alternatives are, you either serve Hashem, which means you give yourself up to Him, or, yeah, that's, or you demand that He serves you. Idolatry is not simply whether you go all the way, you go only halfway, you make a mistake. That's not the end of the road. The end of the road is that, Avodah Hashem means, I serve, whatever you want Hashem, I'm here for you. Whatever you want from me, that's logical. You know, you know better than me, you, you are the source of reality, whatever you say is, I serve. Idolatry means, one second, hold on a moment, I've got my needs, now let's see how we can manipulate the system. And not only the system, but manipulate whatever part of the system is necessary, all the way if necessary. The Gemara puts it like this, it says that, you see the frightening thing to understand is that service of Hashem means you give your life up to Him. Idolatry means that you expect Him, no less, to serve you. The way the Talmud puts it is, it says that the righteous individuals, Hashem, God stands over them. Like it says, Hashem nitzav Allah. When, I, when, Yosef, when Yaakov had the dream of the ladder, it says Hashem was standing over him. But when Pharaoh is discussed, it says, Pharaoh stood over the Nile, which was the Egyptian God. It means an idolater stands over his God. Right? And he tells his God what he wants. And the God serves. That's what it is. And therefore, this concept of idolatry is really the concept of... That's what astrology is. Astrology is looking up what's wrong with astrology. Can we think through it logically? What's wrong with astrology? What's wrong with looking at the stars and knowing what they say? The answer is nothing. Nothing. The Talmud is full of astrological references. But thinking that the stars or any intermediate zone has any decision-making power, that it's only, not only a control channel, but it is some point of origin in itself. That's where the error is. Do you know what the Talmud says is the punishment for astrology? You know, if there's an astrological prediction that is credited, you may believe it. You know that? It's written, for example, that an accredited astrologer... Today, these things are very, very rare. Although there's no reason why they should not exist. You're not talking here about prophecy, which does not exist. But if there would be an, a, a, a genuine astrologer who would inform you about some element of your future, let's say, or reality, 
I'm not talking about trivial things, like people who are astrologically sensitive and can tell you elements of your own construction, your own inner <coughs> personality elements. That's trivial. But, but a higher level of skill can actually tell something before it strikes ground. So the halakha is, the law is, you may believe it. The Talmud is full of examples like that, where great sages took preventive action because of a certain force that was on its way. But you may not seek such advice. You may not go and see an astrologer and ask for... Yeah. Why? Because a Jew has to relate only to the source, not to the energies on their way down. Do you know what the punishment is for seeking astrological advice? That the prediction that you're given will now be unalterable. You now know, but you can't change. Because the whole concept of being a Jew is that you go beyond the particulate and differentiated energy to the source where all things are possible. That's the expression, Ein Mazal Le Yisrael. Ein Mazal, there's no Mazal. Mazal means astrology. We have no astrological reality. We're capable of rising above it. But you want to put yourself into it, the punishment is you become part of it. Not a punishment, it's a consequence. You put yourself into the natural mechanism, the consequence is you become part of the natural mechanism. A Jew is required... On the contrary, you're required to believe and understand that even if you're given information that a certain thing is about to happen, that you transcend that. That's called Tamim Tia. You deal with Hashem Himself. You don't deal with intermediaries. You have to know that even if the intermediary energy is on the way down, it will happen differently. It will still be true, but not the way you thought. But if you lock it in, you go and you seek that, you want to become part of the natural, the technical, so then you become part of that. That's measure for measure. You build yourself into that, builds itself into you. It's actually learned from a verse. The Yerushalmi says it's learned from a verse. In this week's parsha, In this week's Seder, when Bilam is cursing the Jewish people, he says the most incredible praise of the Jewish people. One of the praises he says is, Kiloi nachash v'yakob. Lo nachash v'yakob means that nichush means, very hard to translate, but nichush is a sort of astrological prediction or divination perhaps. Divination. Loi nachash v'yakob means there's no divination in Yaakov. So Yerushalmi has a play on words. The Talmud Yerushalmi says it can have, be read in two ways. means there's no divination in the Jewish people, but for those who engage in divination, for him there is. The, the, the verse can mean either. You can read it as meaning not, or meaning to, to that individual there is. Up to you. You can bring it, that's exactly the Jewish power, to bring out the divine energy into the world in the way that you make yourself subject to. Of course, to make yourself transcend the mechanism, you have to be a transcendent person. You have to transcend. You have to hold on to these 13 things in such a way that you live in that zone. When Hashem appeared to Abraham, Avram Avinu, and He said to him, you'll have a child. So Avram Avinu said to Hashem, but it says in the stars otherwise. You have to understand this argument. You have to understand this argument. Here's a human being. He's sitting in his tent. God appears to him, an incredible human being, but a human being. Hashem himself appears and says, I'm telling you, you'll have a child. So, what's his response? He said, well, that's an opinion, he says. <laughs> well, what's going on? Imagine this discussion. Imagine God appeared to you and said, a certain thing will happen in the future. Would you, would you argue? And what do you bring as proof? Astrology? What's going on? Can you see the problem? But what's going on is this. When Hashem appeared and said to him, you'll have a child... He said, but Hashem, how can that be? You're telling me I'll have a child, but you're telling me in your stars that I won't. Who wrote the stars? Who writes the stars? Whose finger yeah, is each of those 
projections of energy that is an astrological source of energy, who is it? It's yours. So how can you tell me on the one hand this and on the other hand that? So Hashem told him the most incredible Kiddush, the most amazing source of the Jewish soul revealed to him. It says, It took him outside. And he said, look at the stars. Can you count those? So the simple, the simple interpretation of the verse is he took him outside his tent and showed him the stars. The Kabbalistic interpretation is he took him outside the stars and he said, you don't live under those. You live above those. What's written in those stars is not relevant to you. What's written in those stars is flexible and malleable. It will come down as they said, but the way that I say. But you have to, be, you have to live that way. You have to be a person who is able to, to speak to Hashem. You have to be able to live from here and there. It could be a simple, it could be one mitzvah. The, 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 the Babli says that an astrologer told Rabbi Akiva that his daughter would die on her wedding day. In talking the days of very powerful astrological knowledge. And the great Rabbi Akiva was very concerned about it. And in fact, on her wedding day, the girl was sitting at the, at the suda at the meal, and she took a hairpin from her hair, and she put it into the wall behind her and transfixed a cobra that was about to strike. So the, rab- the sages came around, the rabbis gathered around to find out what had happened. And they questioned, and finally it turned out that they discovered what happened. What happened was, during the wedding meal, someone had arrived who didn't have a meal. A beggar had walked in, and no one had noticed so the rejoicing of the daughter of Rabbi Akiva, but she noticed, and she gave him her meal, and saved her life. Because when you do that which is not natural, you live in the higher world rather than the natural world, you become a transcendent person. That's what a mitzvah means. The word mitzvah means connect. But tzavtachada means in one bond. Mitzvah doesn't only mean command. Mitzvah means connection. So when you perform a mitzvah, you do an action in this world, the source of which is a command from the higher world, and you link in there. And you lift it out of this world. Because you have to do it investing in there. We're not talking about doing a technical action. We're talking about doing an action here that's sourced in the command in the higher world. But it's done here because it's sourced there. That's where it lives. <laughs> Just add one more word. I know it's late, but... Yeah, you have energy for one more? Just, yes. let's just sum it up this way. Is that the picture clear? Yes. Just one more word. There's an amazing Mishnah. The Mishnah says like this in Sukkah, in the tractate of, of Sukkah, the Mishnah says like this, that when they did the service in the temple, during the Simchas Beisashrava, during Sukkot, there was a moment when they stood in the, in the gates of the temple, Beisamikdash, and they looked towards the sun. And they said, Our forefathers who stood in this place were idolaters. You know the Jewish people began before Abraham as pagan, as a pagan idolatrous. That's where Avraham Avinu was born from a pagan, from an idolatrous source. Our forefathers who stood in this place, their backs were to the sanctuary, to the sacred, as it were, <coughs> and they faced the sun. And they would bow down to the sun. This is what it says. This is what they would say. We weren't ashamed to, rec- to recall where we had come from. And they would say, Leka Enenu, Ka Yud, Yud, Hey, Yud and Hey, Hashem's name, Leka Enenu, our eyes, but now we say, our eyes are to you. In other words, our ancestors stood here, they bowed down to the sun. But we have come to your service, and we stand here and we say, our eyes are turned to you. Unlike our forefathers who worship the sun, we, Hashem, we, we give ourselves to you. And then there's an amazing argument in the Mishnah. Rabbi Yehuda, one of the sages, comes along and argues with all the rest of the, the rabbis. And he says, they did not say that. They added other words. They said, Anu leka, u leka Which is very strange to understand. It means, we Hashem are for you, 
and to you our eyes are turned. What is this argument? <coughs> the one version is they said, Our eyes are turned to you. And Rabbi Yehuda argues very vehemently and says, No, they didn't say that. They said, We are for you and to you our eyes are turned. What difference does that make? But the answer is very, very beautiful. I heard this from my Basman as well. It's a very beautiful insight. The answer is like this. The first opinion is, they bowed, yeah, our ancestors bowed to the sun. But we say, Hashem, our eyes are turned to you. Our eyes, Hashem, are to you. Comes along Rabbi Yehuda and says, that's not good enough. You know why? Because what was idolatry? They faced the sun. Why did they face the sun? Because the sun delivers the goods. The one who's concerned about delivery of the goods is concerned about himself. So now, you say that we're not idolaters anymore. We turn to Hashem and we say, Hashem, our eyes are turned to you. But for what? For me? What does a person turn his eyes to Hashem for? Because he wants him to deliver the goods. It's a lot better than the underlings. Because at least he has the power to give him the goods if he wants. But you're still making the mistake of... You've eliminated half the problem, right? Half the problem was speaking to underlings and intermediaries who have no authority. Which is a complete figment of the imagination. That you've done well. But you're still concerned about you instead of being molded for service. Do you understand that? See, that's not worship of, that's not service of Hashem. That's a person who's going to the correct source, which is wonderful, and that's a mitzvah. But he hasn't given himself. He still wants Hashem to serve him. At least it's Hashem, at least it's God. But he is the main focus of his concern. And therefore, says Rabbi, they didn't say that. They said, I know Lakar. Let's get it straight. Let's get it clear. First of all, we are for you. Now that we've said that, our eyes are turned to you for what we need. That's legitimate. Now to the subtlety of that argument. That means there's more only than relating to Hashem. There's another step as well. The first step is not to make the mistake of dealing with intermediates. As if they have any power. Whether it's a sun or a moon or a bank manager or a, a law of chemistry or gravity or, 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 or economics. Is an intermediary. Dances to the tune of a higher master. That's the first mistake. is to deal with a higher master. But then there's another mistake. Dealing with him for, for whose sake? You're dealing with him for your sake. It's not Abba Hashem. It's not idolatry, but it's as a, as it smacks. It has a, and therefore the real reversal here from the pagan origin is not only to focus on the source of reality, but it's to focus on not a taking from the source, but a giving. In this, this in very brief summary has been the beginning of an approach to this fifth of the principles that the Rambam says the one whom it is fitting to deal with or to serve, as it were, as opposed to idolatry, which is the, the negative source of this. Mr. Shemin, in the future, will we'll, we'll take it further.